welcome back to another episode of the Nerd Alert Podcast. James is otherwise occupied. I don't actually know what he's up to at the moment. Anyway, Ronan and I are going to do a deep dive because we do love a deep dive. Specifically, Ronan, we've got you here today to talk about the, the science of Everesting because, well... There's quite a lot of science that goes into it. You spent a huge amount of time on training, nutrition, equipment, marginal gains, all this stuff. And we want to talk through, well, all the things that you did to knock not only, was it 20, was it 24 minutes, 22 minutes off of your previous time? 24 off my time. 24 off your previous time and roughly 20, a little under 20 off of the world record, which as of recording... You still hold. I do feel like we need to put that in there in case some crazy person goes out and does it, you know, three minutes faster or something like that. But as of recording, you still hold the world record in Everesting. And we're going to talk through the whole process from start to finish. Uh, Mm -hmm. Buckle up because there's going to be a fair amount of science in this, fair amount of, uh, like I said, engineering, marginal gains, aerodynamics, training, nutrition, all sorts of stuff. We'll get into it. We should probably start with a caveat that I'm not a qualified scientist or, or engineer. <laughs> neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> but but I had a lot of help along the way. Yeah. So you're gonna be you're gonna be kind of pulling in, you know, conversations with uh, other folks that you had. And your was it Secret Squirrel Club? Is that what you were calling it? Secret right? Sheep Club. Secret Sheep. That's right. The mm. Secret Squirrel Club was the was the British cycling version. Uh, and you had the secret sheep club, <laughs> which if anybody watched the YouTube videos that we put up, if you haven't, you should, uh, there's some sheep around and I assume those are the sheep that you were speaking with. Yeah. Those, those are the sheep I was avoiding as well on the, on the actual Everesting <laughs> attempt, but those are the, those are the sheep that, that were, yeah, massive help throughout the process. Let's, uh, let's discuss the sheep real quick. Who did you bring on to help with this effort? Well, uh, I suppose this effort all started with uh, Josh Portner uh, from from Silka, and he was the and uh, initially convinced me to to try and attempt the sub seven hour Everesting, and um, yeah, that that ended up uh, turning into a six hour forty Everesting. Uh, we also had support there from Robert Chung and, and Tom Anhalt, similar sort of group there. Um, Robert and Tom with an endless thread of emails from them. Uh, David Bailey, head of performance with uh, Bahrain Victorious, um, previously coached me and and lent lent a hand here as well. And then we had support as well from um, from Dan Dan Bigham and and Watchup, the aerodynamic guru. And lastly, a couple of um, couple of gadgets we might say, a couple of tech bodies or tech. I'm stuck for words here. <laughs> Uh, we like, had we had some help little well. like 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 wearable tech things yeah 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 so we were uh heavily focused on validating the nutrition strategy that i had for for everesting and then also looking at the impact that core temperature would have on on my performance and could it be used to increase my performance uh through through training prior to the event Interesting. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, is that that's like the you had a glucose monitor on, and you had a bunch of other stuff going on? Yeah, not. I didn't have as much gadgets going on on the day as I had for the half everything the week before. The week before was yeah, it was a sight to behold. There was 
<laughs> there was arrow sensors, there was motion sensors, there was glucose sensors, there was all sorts, yeah. Even, even had a heart rate monitor on. Oh, man. I haven't worn one of those in a while. Actually, that's a lie. I've got a watch on that has my heart rate on it right this second. We'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, let's, let's, start with, let's start with your training. Uh, so you self-coached. Mm-hmm. What approach did you take? What were the what was the what were the main focuses of your training? Given the fact that you were about to go do what basically seventy six like five to six minute intervals at about three hundred and forty watts, which you know sounds easy to me. I don't know. I don't know what the problem was here. <laughs> and and that there is the key repeatability. You know it, it uh, and that, that's sort of a lesson that I've learned over over the last decade or so, and and haven't used a power meter for for that long, and that's. You know, initially, like like many, I think I was sort of obsessed with the absolute power number, the the peaks that I could achieve, and for the Everesting attempt, I you know I had to sort of refocus and and uh, the the target became repeatability and also the sort of the makeup of of that power. So I focused a lot on my aerobic engine and uh, tried to decrease my sprint capability even further it was already pretty low but uh, I wanted to cut down on 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 that even even further and, and just focus on being able to sustain that you know steady sort of effort for for much longer I, I have to ask what's your what's your sprint power output my my peak isn't so bad I can I can do like 1300 maybe on a, on a good day but the problem is it's like 1300 and then two seconds later it's 900. Uh, <laughs> I have no, I have no sustained peak or sprint power. <laughs> I'm just, you know, asking for a friend who might at some point have to race you up something. So you're saying, make sure that the race is about 15 seconds long and just go from the gun is probably the best way to beat you at this point. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I was going to say I'm unbeatable, but I'm unwinnable in that situation. <laughs> <laughs> so, how did your training? differ from the last attempt to this attempt uh you know we're going to kind of go into later how much of that 24 minutes was was marginal gains and technology and things like that but i mean some of it must have been physiology right some of it must have been fitness so how did your training differ and what what results did you see from that i would say the training differed in that that you know pre-covid so november 2019 starting a winter thinking that I was prepping for a road racing season and having done a, a great winter there, I had my first training camp in, in years and uh, I came into the racing season in, in good condition and, and ready to race. But the focus out there was very much on, you know, building a base first of all and then building towards competition and, and the sort of stochastic nature of of road racing and, and, and responding to surges and making attacks and that. And then when the whole season was canceled, the the focus sort of flipped to turning that fitness into more of an endurance style fitness, whereas this winter the focus right from the very start was just building that aerobic engine and and purely focused on sustained uh, repeatability and a lot of focus as well on just big gear efforts. You know, I was going to be riding up uh, an average, basically average fifteen percent gradient with pitches up to twenty four percent and. Uh, that was going to require, you know, turning over a, a pretty big gear, uh, 60 or 70 RPM average. So that, that was a lot different from what I've usually done. And I would say it's probably a lot more enjoyable because 
I don't like sprints and I don't like attacking and <laughs> they, they, they hurt me a lot and not having to do them and just being able to be really lazy, lazy put it in a big gear and, and churn that out for hours on end suits what I can, what I can do. Did you have any breakthrough rides or, or like, were you testing yourself throughout the winter to track your progress? I, I only did two tests. Uh, one was over the Christmas holidays when I sort of had an extended period there of training to be able to begin this block towards the Everesting and then about three days beforehand. And the first test was, you know, to give myself a, a benchmark for, you know, zones and that to, to work with and, and what to focus on. I was specifically looking at uh, my, my VLA max or my glycolytic capacity because that was what I wanted to reduce as much as possible. Um, so that, that was, that was back around Christmas time. And then the test about three or four days beforehand was just to sort of work out where exactly I was in terms of my fitness. It, it, you know, it was too late to make any changes, but what it did allow me to do was build a pacing plan that I knew would be sustainable based on, on my condition at that, that time. And, and it was intended to be a week before the Everesting attempt, but with weather changes and that, it ended up being three days before, beforehand. And I would say... I decided to do that test because I did have a breakthrough ride a, a couple of times in, in the weeks previous to that where, you know, when I tested at Christmas time, my anaerobic threshold was 360 watts um, and I was finding that quite easy. So I, I sort of, you know, improvised the test one day during the session. I, I did uh, two by 20 minutes with literally only five or 10 minutes recovery between them at, at 370 to 380 and felt like I was cruising. So I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good shape here i should test again and, and be prepared to go the next good day that we get that brings me to some some key stats here so so coming into this effort to do a 640 everesting what were what was your 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 ftp your vo2 etc and, and maybe we should just very briefly sort of define those things too so your functional threshold power um and then your 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 vo2 max if you had it uh so yeah my you know, I have to stress that these are models. They're not actually, you know, lab tested results uh, for obvious reasons. Can't go visiting a lab at the moment, but that's obvious reasons is there is no labs near me. So, um, yeah, my my modeled FTP around the time of the Everesting was at 381 watts. Uh, I sort of refrained from weighing myself, but I believe I was in the region of 69 kilos. Um, my VO2 max was 81.1 milliliters per minute per kilogram. Uh, again, this is, again, this is modeled. I have to have to do, I have to stress that. And then the, the key one for me, or not the key one, but the one I was really sort of focusing on was my, my VLA max or my maximum glycolytic power. And I'd got that down from 0.6 something to 0.55. And, you know, that just meant that, you know, when I when I was producing the three hundred and thirty watts, that less of that was coming from from my glycolytic system, my anaerobic system, and therefore it would be more sustainable. You're gonna have to define some of these things for me. So your your you said VLA max, VLA max. Yeah, it's it's, it's something that's only recently become uh, testable in in you know a real world environment. Uh, I was going to say, when I was racing bikes, that wasn't a thing. I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. <laughs> well, the easiest way to think about it is like, uh, if you think about your VO2 max, which is your ability to utilize oxygen, and that's sort of your engine, so to speak, the, you want that as big as possible, the, the bigger the better, as with all engines. Um, whereas your VLA max is your your glycolytic capacity or your, you know, your 
your lactate production basically and while you need that as high as necessary you want it simultaneously to be as low as possible so you know lactates for a long time had this bad rap as being you know the reason for the pain in our legs and 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 you know we had all sorts of ways of trying to prevent lactate production but lactate's actually the fuel for the metabolic system and or the aerobic metabolic system and and it's uh when you understand that 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 or at least whenever i understood that that i was able to take a different approach to my my training and sort of um the best way to sort of think about it is that if you look at the likes of you know grand tour sprinters or or you know road racing sprinters not not track sprinters the road racing sprinters might have a vla max of 0.7 to 0.8 uh, and they can you know produce that huge effort and do a massive sprint um at the, at at the end of a road race classics riders might be around 0.4 to 0.6 or so and and they need to have the endurance capabilities but also be able to produce punchy efforts and then grand tour riders might be you know gc riders might be 0.3 and that that's sort of why they have you know we see egan bernal or someone like that and and strada bianchi and he can you know he's one of the best climbers in the world but you wonder well why can't he meet, match Vanderpool? On the last climb up up to Siena, and that's sort of because he, he he hasn't got that um glycolytic capacity to produce a huge effort. He, he can sustain a, a slightly lesser effort for an incredibly long time on alpine climbs and that, but he can't produce that punch. And you know, it, it is trainable, perhaps more so than VO two, but it's incredibly difficult to to train it. So I I was delighted with the small reduction in my VLA max. Um. But you know you're looking at maybe a year or more to to get a an actual proper or a, a large adaption if it's even possible. Mm. Yeah, I, I've had now that I think about it, I've had other um, other coaches mention that to me before. In fact, speaking with uh, Tade Pogacar's coach last summer after the Tour de France, he sort of was discussing Pogacar's ability to. Uh, basically handle lactate and the amount that he was producing as being just incredibly, incredibly low, which would, yeah, suggest that he's very good at climbing mountains for a very long time <laughs> at the Tour de France. No great surprise there. Yeah. And if I like, if I just briefly touch on how that impacted my, my training, you know, rather than constantly aiming for a better 20 minute test, what, what I was sort of doing was, you know, accepting the fact that I was going to have to perhaps punch above my anaerobic threshold to get over the steepest parts of the climb so i was doing a lot of over under work around that threshold to to and you know enhance my ability to not only clear lactate but also to to sit around that sort of effort and and sort of you know use lactate as a fuel when when i um when i when i got to the bottom of the descent each time and 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 yeah well it seems like it's worked in a way did you use the sort of traditional tracking acronyms <laughs> tss ctl atl which uh, again for those not familiar uh training training stress score so it's like a score applied to each day of training for sort of uh, it's like an amalgamation of how hard it was how long it was you get like a score at the end usually in the sort of mid to high hundreds if it was a pretty uh pretty hard training day and then ctl which is chronic training load which is tracking that TSS over a long period of time, uh, ATL acute training load, which is tracking it over a short period of time. So that's how tired you are from yesterday, the day before. 
versus chronic training load, which is how tired you are from what the last month of training. Were you tracking all those things and were and were they useful to you? These are all I think they're all are they all Hunter Allen things? I can't remember who came up with them anyway, but they're like they're training peaks stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was to an extent, yes, where, you know, having, um, you know, a, a job and having a family and that, uh, there's other factors and stresses that, that they don't account for. Um, so I was having to quite often just sort of, you know, just monitor my own personal feeling. And I have the experience now after 15 years of racing to do that. Um, and I also, you know, you have to factor in that if you're only getting, an hour or two hours on a day to train, you know, it, it is difficult to get that CTL really, really high. And it is difficult to get high TSS without going overly intensive in your training. And, and I didn't want to do that overly intensive training. I was focused on, on lower end work. So although I give myself a pat on the back for a 250 TSS day or something like that, uh, and I was conscious that from past experience, I know if I go much above 120 CTL, I'd, I'd start to yeah blow, blow my motor. Um, so I, I used them as a guide rather than as the, the go-to way of tracking my training. And what I just did most often was, you know, train for what I had time for on that day. Or, uh, you know, if I happened to get three days in a row, happy days, but if I then had two days off, you know, it, I wasn't panicking when I seen ATL dropping or, or whatever, like. So, so how did all of this sort of factor into your pacing on the day? I mean, you had a lot of. You had a lot of numbers you had been looking at for the previous months. You sort of knew what you could do, but you, you know, you weren't, you weren't replicating, uh, an Everesting effort every time you went out. So how do you go then turn, you know, okay, I know what my FTP is. I know these other numbers. How do you turn that into pacing? Yeah. Uh, that's a, a good question. And on the on each of the three ever things I've done, I sort of relied mostly on feeling and, and heart rate on the day and and used the parameter as sort of a a guide because, you know, earlier on in the Everesting, especially when I was going for the the record, and you know, you're you've you're on a super light bike, you're on the perfect day and you're dancing up the climb. Um, you know, it it, it is it is very easy to get carried away. Uh, so if I, at any point I seen four or something on the on the wattage figure, then I knew right you're getting carried away. You need to back off. So I used it for pacing it in in that way. Um, but yeah, it is you know it's such a it's such a strange event in that you know it, it's so long, but at the same time you you are pushing such a high pace, and then every four and a half minutes you've got you know a full forty five seconds of of freewheeling. It makes it difficult to pace it very well and i am i'm still having this back and forth in my own mind about did i pace it perfectly or did i go too hard at the start and there's no real way of of answering that because yeah like i took 24 minutes off my previous time so i I definitely didn't get it wrong but i i did go harder at the start and that's partly because the climb is so steep it's very difficult to go much easier until fatigue forces you to go easier um, so yeah, it, it it was there in the background, but it wasn't the sole pacing strategy for for the ride. Dave Bailey is the head coach at Team Bahrain Victorious and a coach of mine from 2010 until 2012, and again for a for a period in, in 2018. So perhaps nobody nobody better place to to speak to 
my own attributes as a writer and my my strengths and weaknesses and how I've adapted those to take on this this Everesting record attempt. I guess it was a few years ago when you were a professional and, and racing and, and we were working together then and yeah at that time you were a pretty accomplished rider at pro continental level and, and, and had a lot of attributes that would you know transition over to world tour but as you know a lot of that's opportunity not just physically where you're at but yeah you had some success by having been a bit of an all-rounder really you know you had always had a, a great endurance capacity and a, and a great power to weight threshold and, and suited particularly the the racing you did in the UK and in Ireland, you know, the short punchy climb. So I guess a bit of a puncher and, and that sort of came through in the races where you had short sustained climbs and things. So yeah, to then switch towards Everesting, which is clearly, you know, it's, a, it's, it's fundamentally an endurance event, right? You're trying to achieve a certain amount of, of climbing in a, as quickly as possible, but it's not going to happen in a few hours. So yeah, that combined with having a, uh, a good power to weight threshold and most importantly, that fatigue resistance to be able to maintain that for the, the six and a half, seven hours, which still makes me laugh when I think about it. So, yeah, I think you, know, you, you were quite smart in how you went about it. You understood the demands of the event. You really focused on perhaps losing a little bit of your top end and focusing more on that power to weight, that sustained effort for what was it like four and a half, five minute climbs with limited recovery and just trying to maintain that over the course of six and a half hours. So, yeah, from the training that you've done previously, you slightly tweaked it to focus more on those demands and that shows in, in, in your physiology, you know, your threshold was at a level which which was uh, good, okay, not world tour mountain climbers, but certainly for that duration of climb around five minutes up there. But more importantly, you know, you obviously developed a, a fantastic capacity to soak up that work hour after hour after hour without seeing too much drop off. So, yeah. Probably not a massive change in your riding style, but obviously much more focused on those demands of everything, which are very different to a a road race in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And, and I've one question come up, I might just spring it on you now, and it's one that we get asked quite often: is you know, if you took someone like um, uh, Michael Landa, we'll take one of your, your one of the riders from your team, and had him had him do an Everesting. You know, is is the demands of road racing and Grand Tour racing so different from the demands of Everesting that, you know, it, it, it wouldn't just be able to get the best of performance for an Everesting from himself, you know, by deciding to go do it next weekend? Or is the level that those World Tour athletes are at so high that they could, you know, meet meet the demands of an Everesting event, you know, without, without much adaption to their training? Great question. Um, I think... What you've done and, and what others did last year, you, you've pushed the event, everything went on so much so now that the answer is no, they couldn't. They'd have to, no matter how great their power to weight is, they'd have to focus on it. You know, if you're trying to compare the demands on a GC rider like Mikel versus you, well, yeah, they do four or five hour stages and deliver that threshold effort at the end on a mountain stage. But your what you did was from from the get-go, you had to do repeated efforts at threshold for, for seven hours. So it on paper, you know, the fundamental building blocks they've got and, and probably have a slight advantage over you because, you know, they're lighter, they can sustain a higher power, but they couldn't do it tomorrow. They'd have to literally fundamentally change how they're training and, and adapt it to the demands. And like I say, because you progressed the event on now, it's not just low-hanging fruit. You've got to go out and invest that time and and, and also don't underestimate the mental fortitude. You know, it's, it's very different when you're surrounded by a team and you've got to deliver an effort at the end of the Grand Tour stage you're on your own and you had to do that work 
time after time after time for a, for, for, for a longer than most stages and road races happen. So it's not just the physical part, but also mentally, you know, they would find that a massive challenge. And, and I think, yeah, I've, I've said to you before, I think you're, you've set a benchmark that's going to be difficult to challenge now. For sure, there are guys out there that may be physically better positioned to do it, but it requires a bit of a commitment now rather than before. A couple of years ago, it was a, perhaps a low-hanging fruit and someone put a bit of time into it. And an and end-of-season thing to do. Exactly. 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 But even so, you know, it's not something you can just come off the back of a grand tour and do. You literally have to dedicate, you know, like you did, a really period of time just to, to dial in on every aspect of performance, equipment, setup, as well as the conditioning. And they'd have to switch completely, yeah. Interesting. Well, uh, it sounds like my uh, my record might be safer than than I thought. Maybe <laughs> I think it will be for sure. Yeah. Moving on from your own physiology training, things like that, and into the fun stuff. Physics. Yeah, we'll talk about physics. Uh, I was never particularly good at physics. Uh, so we won't go into too much depth here, I don't think. But uh, thankfully, we had some folks around who were quite good at physics. And <laughs> I'm going to start with just the simple one. So you spent a lot of time thinking about aerodynamics uh, for a an uphill, a fundamentally uphill challenge because it's got a fair amount of downhill, obviously. In fact, uh, half of it <laughs> is downhill. So how do aerodynamics help in an Everesting challenge, why was it so important? Well, first of all, as you said, you know, half of this event, at least in terms of distance, is downhill, and and that equates to when when I look at the, the file afterwards, it was over, I think it was an hour and eighteen minutes or something of descending at eighty plus kilometers per hour, and so yeah, straight away there, any savings you can make are, are going to be of benefit. The 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 clock is always rolling, but it's only really, it only really matters for the uphill section. The downhill is just a necessary evil. So any time spent descending is is wasted time. So the way I approached it was if I can reduce that descending time even just by a, a bit, it's going to have a, a huge impact over the course of 76 laps. And uh, we worked it out to be, roughly speaking, for every kilometre an hour extra on my average descending speed, it would save me a minute at the end of the, the event. So that that's pretty big when you start to look into the, the, the... It really is marginal gains, but they really do... Uh, accumulate quite quickly huh so so where's the tipping point then because you know you went with a bike that was not you didn't you know you didn't ride a time trial bike right you didn't go all in on aero you went with a frame that was in the 700 gram range that giant tcr uh but you did some sort of wonky stuff to it like stick a fairing on the front of it so so where is that tipping point between aero and weight here well there there is you know we we can we we can calculate the uh, advantages in your uphill time by saving weight and um, but it's really you know you're talking per per kilogram seconds per kilogram saved and what i well, rather than focusing on just trying to get the lightest bike possible what i focused on was get the light, the bike as light as possible and then look at each individual part after that and you know when you when you boil it down to each part if the aero handlebars that I used were 80 grams heavier than the most lightweight set of handlebars I, I could find. You know, is that worth it? And what we ultimately decided was, yes, it was. And then we look at the fairing and that's an extra 150 grams, I think it was. 
you know, is that 150 grams going to be outweighed by the aerodynamic benefit going downhill? And and most certainly it was as well. So, you know, you're, you're sort of looking for, rather than the ideal for both, you know, it, it would have been more aerodynamic to have a time trial bike, but it, it is lighter to have a road bike. So you're, you're looking for where is that balancing point? And it's, it's different for, for each component, um, you know, for, for tires and wheels, uh, I ended up going for, for lighter options, but you know, I was happy to go for the heavier aero bars because as the name suggests, they were more aerodynamic. Should we hear from Dan Bigham? Yeah, I think he might be able to explain it a bit better than I can. Dan Bigham is an aerodynamicist, former Mercedes F1 engineer and now of Watchup, world's team time trial medalist, track World Cup winner, national champion, consultant for Canyon SRAM, Jumbo Visma and the Danish national squad, and author of his soon-to-be-released book, Start at the End. Dan was kind enough to look into some of the aerodynamic and performance demands of an Everesting record attempt, and I asked him if there was a simple rule of thumb or tipping point for aero versus weight in an Everesting. Literally half the event been uphill at very slow speeds and the other half been downhill at very, very high speeds. Is this, like from your point of view, is this a modeling nightmare or a modeling dream to try to perfect this or optimize this attempt? I'd say more of a dream. It's quite a fun one to get your, your teeth stuck into and understand what's going on and where because you're at two extremes of going very slowly but relatively most of the time, but also going very, very quickly where drag is incredibly important, but you've got to go uphill and downhill. So you lose weight, you go faster up the hill, but you go slower down the hill. So there's a, a trade-off there of not just the aero side, it's the aero and the impact on mass and how that affects both sides and also the cornering and the braking to consider. So there's, there's some interesting parts to it and it's not as easy as it seems of just trying to climb a hill. There's the other stuff that makes a significant difference once you look at the numbers. Yeah, definitely. And that's sort of what I've been trying to get my head around. And that's, you know, hopefully what you can, you can help me with today, but is, is it as simple as, is there a tipping point for weight and, and arrow there that obviously if something is the same weight and it's more aerodynamic, it's not going to hurt me going uphill and it's going to help me going downhill. So that's a no brainer, but a lot of arrow stuff tends to be heavier. So is there any sort of way of a simple rule of thumb? Not in this scenario, rule of thumb, but you can figure out the impacts of of weight addition or weight loss uh, and then the exact same on, on the aero side. So, for example, uh, I put a simple model together, which is what I've got on this screen here, uh, which is just some Excel inputs of the CDA and CRR and the climb that you've got to go up and obviously also go down. And what happens if we change a few things? How does that affect your, your power? So the one that I was simply looking at was what happens if you add, or sorry, take a kilo of mass off. So... If, for you on your climb, you're talking around two and a half to three seconds for taking a kilo off, which obviously you've got to go up 80 something times, is it? 76, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you're talking in the region of around four minutes going up to take a kilo off, which is a pretty substantial amount. But then well, on the other side... That's enough to take you... the record compared to my old time, so that would <laughs> oh, be, that would be perfect, yeah. Although you then have the other side of the equation of you going slower down the hill because you don't have the mass accelerating you, which is a significant input. So you've actually got your weight and the speed you're going down that hill, around one and a half thousand watts being input from gravitational potential energy. So you've got all that energy that you're slowly putting in, riding up there in, what is it, three and a half, four minutes, something like that. And mm-hmm. then all that energy gets released in a matter of 30, 40 seconds. So there's a huge amount of energy in a short time, so a big, big amount of power. 
um, as you reduce the mass, then smaller energy input, which means going down the hill, if you were a kilo lighter, you'd be about a second or so slower for that kilo. So you gain two and a half, you lose a second. Um, it's obviously still quids in, but it's not quite as much as if you just looked at the pure modeling of saying, well, you're going up the hill. And then on the aero side, going up the hill, you've got about six, maybe seven watts of aero drag, <laughs> which is next to nothing. Whereas yeah. going down the hill, you've got about 700. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got two absolute extremes. And yeah, things like disc wheels, you've discussed, you might take a bit of a hit on the mass front there. You might be a couple hundred grams heavier, but you might save in CDA terms 1% or so, which might be seven watts on that descent. Um, so it's not just energy as well. You want to work in time. That, that's a good metric. You want to figure out that energy saving, what's that going to save you going down the hill? How much quicker are you going to go? Because it, as the other thing to consider is you're not just steady state. You're not going down that hill at 70k an hour. You're starting at 10, 11, 12k an hour, and you're finishing up at 80, 90k an hour. There's mm -hmm. a, a gradual acceleration as well. And this, the faster you can accelerate and hit that peak speed, uh, the better. That's kind of a combination of either being heavier or even putting a good kick in at the start. Uh, so you could use some of your energy to accelerate at the top of the hill. On the, on the way to descending and then obviously get into whatever aero position you deem is the best option, which is another advantage of not being under the UCI regs. You, you can tuck to your heart's content. So we just heard how weight savings result in gains going uphill. That is obvious. We all know this. Uh, but losses going downhill because obviously if you're a bit heavier for your given CDA, your, your aerodynamics, you're going to go a little bit slower downhill. Uh, and of the importance of hitting a higher velocity earlier in the descent. So what did you do to balance all these things? Yeah, so as, as we heard Dan mention there, you know, getting, getting to your top speed sooner means you'll descend faster. Even if, you're, if, even if your top speed stays the same, the quicker you can get there, the better. And... I had sort of learned this from my Everesting world record last summer and that's, you know, I had, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the, the trade-off and I had stripped back the cassette to just three sprockets last year and that was, you know, to save weight. Uh, that was the only reason for it was just to save weight. And I very quickly realized early in, in, the, uh, in, in the ride that at the top of the descent, I just had to wait for gravity to accelerate me. The, the biggest gear I had was a 39.25 and I was immediately spun out. So this year, uh, I I moved to a much bigger, I included an extra few sprockets to have a much bigger gear to accelerate at the top, and I had a forty four seventeen, and that had a noticeable difference. I I was getting so much quicker, so much sooner at, at the top of the descent. I mean, it's all about how like spending the maximum amount of time at that top speed, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's the same on the other end too, on on the breaking point. I mean that that's why it's one of the fundamental reasons why. You know, people are like, oh, you should maybe consider disc brakes because, you know, in theory, if you have better braking and later braking and more controlled braking, you can stay at top speed a little bit longer. That's the argument, right? You had, you opted not to go with disc brakes. And this isn't down on my list of questions here, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I like, you know, whacking the hornet's nest, I guess. Uh, <laughs> what was what was the decision there? So you went with, with not just rim brakes, but like like slightly terrifying rim brakes. <laughs> Uh, uh, Actually, that's that, not. No, you went. You went with the um, EE. 
The EE brakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so never mind. I, I, in my head, for some reason, you had gone with some crazy tri brakes, but no, the EE brakes are great as mm-hmm. rim brakes go. But nonetheless, you went with you went with rim brakes and not disc brakes. Yeah, and that that was sort of two reasons. First of all, and I am probably going to whack the hornet's nest here as well, like, but um, <laughs> first of all, they are lighter. That's undeniable. And then they're also more aerodynamic. Uh, and that that was that's the two things I was trying to achieve with this bike: lightweight and aerodynamic. And like a couple of other uh, adaptions I made to the bike, it ticked both boxes. So that to me, that was a it was a no brainer. I am not the most you know, skilled descender on a bike. I was already at my limit and I, I don't know how much extra benefit disc brakes would have given me for this particular event. I am, since I've had a couple of test bikes here recently, I am a disc brake convert. Um, but but for this, if I was to go back tomorrow, I would use rim brakes again. And Hornets next. <laughs> They're coming for you. No, I, I think I would have made exactly the same decision, honestly, in this particular instance, because... It's a very repeatable uh, braking effort, right? Mm-hmm. You know exactly where you have to slam on the brakes. You know exactly how to how to get it done. Uh, you're not trying to feather it through a corner and whatever else. And I think it makes perfect sense. Let's be honest; like a good rim brake is pretty damn good. That's the other thing. The only difficulty I had with the brakes was that after you know specifically looking for those turquoise and silver brakes, I then went and hid one behind that front fairing, uh, and that Sad. was the most that was the most difficult thing I had with the brakes. <laughs> I've got those same brakes on my personal bike and I do, I love them. They're great. They're fantastic. So yeah, I can't blame you for that one. What mm-hmm. other, what other choices did you have to make here? So you had clothing choice, helmet choice, shoe choice. How did you go through this? Uh, I, it was very much a similar approach, you know, lightweight and, and aerodynamic and, you know, a, uh, despite what pretty much everybody said about don't use a skin suit, use either bibs and jersey or use a, a race suit at best because you know you've still got you should have theoretically more comfort in, in a race suit and you've got access if you need to take a, a, a toilet break um but yeah the skin suit was slightly lighter theoretically it should be more aerodynamic and yeah it, it was a, a lot lighter material as well which which made it you know more breathable and, and kept my uh kept me under control that way the helmet was the exact same thing it was lighter and Again, I, did, I couldn't test it, but theoretically more aerodynamic than my previous helmet. And then we've got a lot of questions about why didn't I wear overshoes? Um, the, the the simple reason there was I wore overshoes for both the Everesting rides last year and they very quickly started to to slip down and fall down. You know, it's it's not a 20-minute time trial. It's a seven-hour endurance ride. And despite using tub tape and hair, hairspray and all sorts, they, they slipped down after a while. And I just went for with aero socks and a cover over the over the the midsection of the shoes um and you know that is has been seen to been used quite often in, in time jobs as well it's not it's not a slow setup either i want to talk about the tailwind <laughs> doesn't ever a lot has been made of this tailwind i believe there was a youtube commenter uh i can't remember what his name was who basically accused you of only taking the record because of the tailwind mm-hmm. this seems somewhat questionable uh, I have personally attempted an Everesting and uh, I had a tailwind for part of it. And yet at six hours and 40 minutes, I was only about halfway through. <laughs> so I feel like that may not be true. Uh, talk to me about the tailwind and, and how it affected your ride. Uh, well, it, it definitely didn't hurt, put it that way. And, and the other thing is I definitely wasn't going to wait for a headwind. 
Uh, that would just be <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> so, but you know, it, it comes back to you know, if you look at you know other record attempts or or they are record is a perfect example. You know, writers go to altitude because it is a it is a benefit and it, it, it does allow you to to go further and go faster. And it was the exact same thing. I, I wasn't you know I, I wasn't solely waiting for an absolute hurricane tailwind. You know, there was other factors there like temperature. Temperature was a, as big a factor. Um, dry, it, it, you know, I didn't want wet roads where I couldn't turn as quickly, and pressure and air density and all were all factors as well. So you know, it wasn't the only factor, but it was it was near the top of the list there of of things we were waiting for. Since we're still on the uh, the equipment, I don't I want to go too far away from equipment just yet. So other marginal gains that that you were able to dig up. Uh, drivetrain efficiency tire pressure how did you optimize these things i assume you read dave rome's seven bajillion word uh drivetrain efficiency story and based your decision entirely off of that (laughs) what else did you go through there uh yeah and that actually delayed the attempt by a number of months trying to get through that uh dave rome's piece there (laughs) but yeah it was definitely a a useful resource uh drivetrain's probably the one i'm perhaps most proud of, uh, <laughs> if, if you can be proud of something like that. And that's, you know, I, I looked very much at, at other disciplines of, of bike racing, especially track. And, you know, there's a trend there recently to go to bigger and bigger chain rings and sprockets for the increased efficiency that that, that offers. And I tried to look at, you know, how could I achieve the same on an Everesting bike? And what I landed on was a 44 front chain ring paired to a 40-tooth rear sprocket. Um, and I had considered bigger options. Uh, I had looked up as high as a 50 front chain ring to a 46 rear. Uh, there is a point where you just can't fit it onto a road bike with a rear derailleur. Uh, and there's also a point that my wallet didn't want to stretch any further in, in testing things. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, 44, 40 was what I landed on with oversized jockey wheels. And that's all in the name of you know, reducing the amount of articulation that the chain has to go through and, and, and thereby increasing uh, drivetrain efficiency. And, and, and not only did I opt for a bigger sprocket on the rear, but I also put that biggest sprocket right on the center of the free hub uh, or, you know, perf- uh, perfectly aligned with the front chain ring so that when I was, you know, at, at maximum output on the steepest pitches, my chain line was perfectly straight rather than being cross-chained, which again gets a few gra- a few watts of, of drivetrain efficiency and uh was kind of fun to try and get that set up right i mean you were you were dealing with some people that can do these sort of calculations so do, do you have any idea kind of how, how much faster that drivetrain was relative to like you know a bone stock just <laughs> take a bike off the showroom floor and and ride it up a hill uh you know we we had planned to look into stuff like that but despite the fact that i had the first Everesting or this, the first sub seven hour Everesting postponed six months earlier, I still ran out of time for stuff like that. So might might have to come back with those exact details in, in, in a future episode. But if one, one of the estimations that I heard banded about was roughly six watts um, for it's, it's a third of a watt for every increase in the chain ring size. And then by moving the, or every extra tooth in, in the, in the, chain ring and sprocket setup and then also by moving the, the sprockets more central in the free hub it gives a few watts also so um it's not been tested but it was estimated around six watts 
I've always felt like my little ring was slower than my big ring. Yeah, I, thought, I always why. felt that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, if it's a third of a watt per tooth, then that's not, that's a couple watts between the two of them. Makes it actually makes some sense. Oh. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Guess I'll just ride around the big ring from now on. That's it. Maybe well, not. you could just only have a big ring. <laughs> what about tire pressure? Uh, I think I think I saw that you were running like 70-ish PSI, which I think a lot of people would think is low, mm. but you were dealing with kind of the king of tire pressure, who is Josh Portner. Uh, what did you learn from Josh, and where did he end up on the tire pressure? So to back up a little bit further, first of all, it was resurfacing the whole road was ruled out by the local council. Um, so that wasn't an option. Uh, even even painting line a line on the road was was ruled out. Uh, so that that also wasn't an option. So then we were left with just optimizing what we had. Uh, and again, you know, just because of lack of access to the climb uh, over the last few months because of local lockdowns and stuff like that, I couldn't get out and test it as often. I only got out once. Um, and. The 74 that I had in the front and the 76 that I had in the rear was below the recommended pressure. But what we've found, two things is what, we've, what, we, what we all sort of know or, or what I've learned over the last year or so is that you're better to err lower rather than higher. Um, the, the, the sort of the cutoff point when you increase the pressure is, is it, it rapidly increases your rolling resistance if you go just a couple of PSI too high, whereas if you go too low, it's not as big an impact. And then the other thing we had was in the half everything I'd done a week earlier, I had tire pressure sensors on the on the wheels and we noticed that there was about a one or two PSI increase. It was within the margin of error of of the the sensors, but you know the, we we still monitor we still noticed that increase and that meant, you know, starting at eight o'clock in the morning couple of degrees of temperature increase throughout the day the chances are the pressure was going to go, go was going to go up one or two psi so again we aired a bit lower and that left us at 74 and 76 plus you're heating those rims up quite substantially at the bottom of the hill every time yeah forgot about that one there that was a uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe should have went for discs <laughs> what tires did you run uh i had vittoria corsa speed 2.0 tubulars um and, you know, they, as we mentioned in the Nerd Alert podcast a couple of weeks ago, they're, they're designed for time trialing, uh, which is part of the reason why I chose them. They're super low rolling resistance. They're super light. Uh, tubulars are going to be lighter anyway. Um, but yeah, I, I, they sort of came a cropper of, you know, uh, me pushing the, the, the limits of the descent as much as I could and, and unfortunately having to lock up a couple of times. Um, so yeah, they, uh, they were, they were also, you know, I, they, they were the tires that I used for the half everything the week before. Um, the plan was to use a different set of wheels, um, but literally the night before the everything, we we found the, the one of the wheels was buckled, uh, was damaged on delivery or damaged before delivery or damaged in shipping or something like that. So I couldn't use the brand new wheels with the brand new tires. Um, and then... You know, the traditionalist on me wouldn't let me run two different wheels. <laughs> so I had to run matching wheels. And yeah, that, you know, so I was going into the event with a slightly worn set of tires that are not known for their their robustness. Because they're designed for like 40K time trials. Yeah. Yeah, yeah pretty, pretty much. Yeah. But I, I would add that, you know, I got, I got away with them for 
you know, two Everstings, not the exact same tires, but the same, the same model uh, for two full Everstings, including a longer version of the same climb uh, last summer and, and use those wheels with them, those tires on them for time trials and, and ultra endurance races. And so you can push the, the, the limits of them. I just unfortunately, you know, got caught out on, on this particular, the, the time when it mattered most basically, which is Murphy's Law, isn't it? Alas. What did you not optimize that you wish you had? Uh, definitely that resurfacing uh, of the road. Uh, we're going to have to put a call into the politicians there to ask them what is going on. Like if they can't do that for, I, I mean, a painted line would have made a huge. Like I, I noticed that even riding around here, that if I'm if I'm going for a, you know, a PR attempt up super flag, I, I ride right on that that white line the whole way up on the right hand mm-hmm. side. Like that makes a big difference. It's super smooth. It's like riding on a velodrome. So. I really feel like, you know, council could have come that. through for you on yeah. that one, right? I, th- I think now it'll, it'll probably happen now if they try to, you know, market the area as the Everesting uh, Aguas Calientes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that does make a, a huge difference. But, it was, you know, it was outside of our control. Realistically speaking, it was never going to happen. So um, in terms of what, what I optimized, really I would have just optimized preparation and the basics a, a bit more and... You know, in an ideal world, I would have had more testing time. Um, you know, it, while I did everything that I could for the bike and for my own fitness and clothing and that, you know, at the end of the day, I was just one person in, you know, in, in, in COVID times where you can't meet many other people too often. And that just meant that, you know, there, there was things that I was doing right up until midnight of the night before the ride that really would have been ideally handed off to, to somebody else. But, you know, that, that those are the times that we're living in. And, you know, that, 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 you know, the, the best example of that is not figuring out that there was an issue with the, the wheel until literally the day before the ride and, and the tubular gluing process taking three days to get, you know, to get it the, as optimal as we could, you know, there, there wasn't time for that. And I only figured that out the last minute because that was the first time that I had time to figure that out. And then, you know, things like, um, just I didn't get a warm up on the day because you know I knew that the rain was going to start at I can't remember I think it was three o'clock or something and you know I knew I had seven hours to get there and at twenty the plan was to start at eight a.m. and at twenty past eight when you know I I was only then getting ready to get my warm up started I knew if I you know if I didn't just start the event then I was going to come hit by this rainstorm later on and you know it turned out that. Five minutes after we finished, literally five minutes after we finished, the heavens opened and this huge downpour. So that was the right decision in hindsight. But you know, had had um, you know things been more optimized that way, I would have had time for a warm up and still started at eight a.m. So there's room for improvement. That's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> for the benefit of the listeners, I am nodding my head from side to side here. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get on to fueling and that and that glucose monitor thing that you were running. Uh, was it the Super Sapiens? Is that what that thing is called? Yep. I mean, we, we, we saw you weighing olive oil in the video. <laughs> were you super strict with your nutrition in the lead up to this thing? Uh, I, I was as strict as I could be, but I wasn't weighing food. The, the video of me weighing olive oil is, you know, that, that was literally in the, in the last... Um, Days before the event, I, I was on what, uh, I was basically cutting out all the fiber I could from my diet to try and 
get rid of any excess bulk there as much as possible. And uh, what I was also trying to do was, you know, carb load as much as possible without adding unnecessary weight. Uh, and and part of what I learned from from the Super Sapiens sensor was that it's not just about providing the fuel there, it's about providing it when it's needed. And what what we ended, ended up deciding on was basically for dinner and, and breakfast and lunch <laughs> for three days beforehand, I was eating white rice. And to add in, you know, some flavor, I like to add salt, pepper, a bit of olive oil, but too much olive oil was just delaying the availability of that glucose in my system. So we, it was, you know, 10 grams was what was suggested to me as would be enough to give some flavor without slowing down the, the release of energy. And, and that's why I was weighing it. It wasn't, it wasn't about, you know, everything I had <laughs> for three months was weighed. Um, I would say as, you know, the, the one big difference I made from last year's Everesting was that or everything diet, I should say, is uh, I cut out the Belgian beers. That seemed to have a, a big effect. Um, you know, as much as mm. I thought they powered me last year, I think they were having a negative impact. <laughs> <laughs> so we cut out the Belgian beers for a while. I still afforded myself, you know, a couple per week. Um, and, and also, I, I like to set myself a challenge. It makes things easier to, to sort of do. So, you know, rather than saying I'm going on a diet, I tried to make more sustainable um you know changes to my my nutrition and i'm I'm already a, a vegetarian for sort of environmental reasons uh so i decided you know it's it's difficult in our house because and i'm not trying to make excuses but you know my daughter has a, has a nut, aller, nut allergy and so it's it's you know nuts make up a large proportion of your diet if you're vegetarian or vegan and and you know it, it is difficult to have them in the house and you have to be very careful so you know, we try to exclude that as much as possible. But what I did, I, I tried to go every other month. I would have uh, live a, a, or you know take a, a vegan diet. Um, and again, that was just it. It's not that it's you know a game changer in terms of performance or anything. It was just a way for me to adapt my diet a, a bit and and feel more more so feel like I was doing something rather than maybe actually having a, a, a tangible benefit and. Uh, it also meant that, you know, being a bit lazy, being stuck for time and being a vegan meant that my food, food intake was quite limited, <laughs> which did, which did help, help with the, uh, help with the Everesting. But, uh, be, you know, being the sucker for a challenge that I am, I had to complete it. So, uh, yeah, that, that certainly helped. What was your fueling strategy on the day? What were you eating, drinking, whatever else during the ride? Matt, Matt Deneef, you know, did a, an Everesting recently as well. And I tried to give him whatever little bit of it support or guidance or whatever you want to call it. And I've, the, the, the bit of, uh, well, I've sort of looked at Everesting the three times that I've done it as an eating challenge rather than a, a physical challenge. Um, because I think if you can really get the fueling dialed in, then you're going to perform much better. And that was what I said to Matt, you know, this is an eating challenge on a bike. Uh, and what I ate on the day very much resembled that. Last year I had, you know, boiled potatoes and I had energy bars and bananas and all sorts, but this year it sort of went a bit more detailed in, in the planning and uh, I was, you know, taking in a, a very strong carb drink on, on the bike at 80 grams of carbs per serving. On top of that I had uh energy gels i had caffeine gels and then i had energy bars that were providing 40 grams of carbs per serving as well so we estimate that i was you know maybe not utilizing but i was at least ingesting 
between 120 and 140 grams of carbohydrates per hour, which is, you know, beyond the upper limits of what's ex- is acceptable or is accepted as, you know, the body can, can utilize or can digest. So, you know, I was, I was overly compensating there, but I knew that, you know, if you keep on top of the fueling at the pace that I was running, you can effectively keep going all day. Uh, and, and that, that was what I was aiming for. And yeah, the, the, the fueling went to a T and again, you know, if we, jump back to the marginal gains aspect of the attempt. You know, I spent so much time trying to figure out how do I get this bike lighter and how do I get myself lighter. And as we heard from Dan, every time you make something lighter, it helps with going uphill, but it, it costs you going downhill. So I was conscious of the fact that, I, you know, this all that was going to be slowing me down for going downhill. So last year I had the, um, the team at the top give me a bottle and I took a drink from it and immediately threw it back to them. This time we sacrificed the 18 grams from a Speedplay Carbon bottle cage uh, to allow me to be able to carry the bottle the whole way down the descent. So I took the drink from it and then carried it. And, or, you know, even if I only took a swig from it, you know, I was getting close to a kilo of extra onto the bike and onto me for each of the descents there. And and then, you know, we had a, a designated zone to, to throw them off at three quarters of the way down the descent before I started my breaking point so that I wasn't carrying that extra weight into the breaking point and, and extending that further. So, you know, that that just meant that I was able to take my time and relax and, and really enjoy that bit of a drink every lap rather than like last year where it was an extra stress to try and get it down as quickly as possible and, and throw it back. You guys really thought of everything. I, I am I am impressed. Uh, any supplementation? Are you, you know, rocking out on the protein shakes or anything like that? Not really. Like I, I, I think across the, full four or five months preparation for this i had two protein shakes uh one was after the half everything because i thought yeah that's a pretty big effort i need to recover from that and then one was just after a random other i found a vegan protein shake during one of the vegan months and yeah i had to try that um but in terms of supplements you know there wasn't very much um dave bailey had suggested i'd try beta alanine because of the repeatability or the repeated nature of the the effort that that would help with that. So I did load on, on beta alanine for, for I think six weeks, which gives you the tingles and isn't too, too nice. Um, so the, uh, glad, glad not to be having to do that anymore. I took a lot of coenzyme Q10, um, just, and also, uh, beetroot juice. Thankfully the concentrated version, not the, I remember when I started doing that way back, I think it was 2009 when I first started taking beetroot juice and, they didn't have the, the concentrated options and you had to drink half a liter per day for six days. And I was on a, <laughs> a pro cycling team driving around with these big bottles of red juice in the fridge. And it was, it was incredibly dodgy looking, but it was just beetroot juice. <laughs> you know, you, you have to appreciate as well that nobody else was drinking beetroot at the time. So yeah, when, when my, uh, when my, you know, uh, urine was red and the fridge was full of red bottles of juice. It, w- it was highly questionable at the time, but <laughs> what one taste of it, you knew what it was. Um, beyond, beyond that, um, and perhaps forgetting something now, but I don't think there was any other supplements really. Like uh, I'm a big believer in a, a good diet rather than, uh, I supplemented with a lot of salad, a lot of salad. <laughs> so that, that, that I think helped. that's, yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I mean, Every nutritionist I've spoken to is pretty much on on board with that. Like if you're eating well, you're getting pretty much everything you need anyway. So mm-hmm. no need to sort of like stack a bunch of stuff on top of that. 
what what about the the glucose monitoring? What why did you use it? What did it tell you? Did it did you use it during the ride and and did it help at all during the ride? Uh so I used it during the ride, but you know, it, it records it, it records to an, an app on your phone and it's constantly updating when you've got your phone beside you. But obviously I didn't want to carry my phone for the everything I did last year and it it works out it's a couple of hundred grams heavier than an Apple Watch paired to wireless headphones. So we went for the Apple Watch option. Um but which eventually let me down. I only had music for half the ride, so could optimize that in future oh. also. Um <laughs> But yeah, when, when you do it that way, when you haven't got your phone present, it only updates every 15 minutes or it stores data every 15 minutes. So we do have data from it and it is incredibly insightful into the nutrition or the fueling strategy that I that I used on the day. And and that was sort of what I used it for most. You know, it I would say it I I had, you know, limited opportunity to really test it as of as of yet. And one of the one of the limiting factors I found with it is that you do have to use the app on your phone to to view. It basically gives you a view of the, the your current glucose levels and your your bloodstream and glucose availability. Um, so having to pull out your phone every so often out in the bike ride isn't, you know, isn't isn't practical. But there, from what I understand, there is a you know a head unit display coming that will that will show it in in live time. Um, but yeah, what we used it mostly for was to validate that the new the fueling strategy I used last year would work, um, and, and you know we we can do that now, and we can hear from from Fede at at Super Sapiens, you know the the data that we have there. But one one of the most useful things I found from it, it just gave me a better understanding of everything. I would say is is sort of second nature, and that you know you have to fuel at uh, intervals, and you have to fuel efforts that you're doing on the bike but by being able to see you know uh, you know when you eat um a banana what impact that has on the glucose availability and then what an effort um like an everesting or like the tests i was doing four days before the everesting or three days before what what glucose requirement that has that would that was really useful for me to understand you know how, how to eat better and what i've actually found from it as well and perhaps maybe detrimental is that you know, if I eat a chocolate biscuit, then I go to a sudden a sudden rise in my glucose levels, which then makes me more productive for the next half an hour. So if I'm sort of struggling with a, a, an article I'm writing for Cycling Tips, <laughs> I now <laughs> lean towards that as as a, a wee pick me up to to keep me going. But you know that that again is is second. You know, we we all sort of understand that anyway, but it's just interesting to see it uh, in the numbers. Should we heard from Fetty? Yes. Federico Fontana is Head of Performance at Team Novo Nordisk and VP of Science at Super Sapiens. And I asked Federico about what data we could extrapolate from the Super Sapiens sensor that I, I was wearing during the Everesting attempt and what that says about the fueling strategy that, that I employed for the record attempt. So our main interest um, as super sapiens was to see and understand the association between uh, the glucose level during your Everesting attempt and the performance outcome, of course. So is the glucose level associated with uh, outcome, but also with the intake? Because looking at your performance data, it was um, clear that you needed to feed with a huge amount of carbohydrate to sustain muscle metabolism since the majority of time was spent 
uh, well above 70% VO2 max. So where you need carbohydrate to sustain energy provision uh, and the quick energy turnover uh, during, during, during the exercise. And uh, the idea was to see uh, at which glucose level you can stabilize and control to provide a constant influx of glucose into the working muscle. And what we've noticed uh, that is a very promising preliminary evidence uh, that you were able to sustain a very constant and stable uh, glucose level between 150 and 180 over almost seven hours um, of, um, of exercise. And that was due predominantly to a, a feeding schedule it was uh, uh, probably a contest, an eating contest on the bike, uh, trying to feed that much. Uh, but that was showing that you were able to, to, to provide the, this constant flow of glucose to the working muscle. So the muscle was capable of uptaking the glucose you ingested to provide energy to sustain work. And uh, uh, doing some calculation afterward based on the intensity of the effort. It was interesting to see that um, out of an ingestion rate of almost 130 grams per hour or 1000 grams in total of carbohydrate, your body uh, has been used something around uh, almost the same quantity uh, to, to produce that amount of work. So you were able to balance out uh, the, the energy need uh, with the intake uh, that, that you were ingesting. And yeah, I have some number here. Um, so yeah, you were almost able to uh, to provide something around 80% um, of the energy demand on the working muscle. So 20% uh, was coming from uh, stores in your body, whether fat stores or uh, glucose stores, but then the majority was provided by the feeding. Um, and overall, uh, I mean, metabolism during the Everesting record attempt uh, was maintained uh, by, by carbohydrate um, over 60%, while fat uh, provided something around 30%. And that's, um, there are some speculation behind those calculations, uh, but it was interesting to see the link between what you did ingest, what you did oxidize, to sustain the working muscle, and then what was the result, the end result into uh, the interstitial fluid as glucose concentration. So, so overall, then you would say that from from what you've seen from the from the sensor data and from the uh, performance threat event, that you know the the fueling strategy was successful. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, first of all, because you didn't develop any uh, gastrointestinal symptoms uh, or GI stress. Uh, that's an important outcome to see. Then performance itself, that so you were able to deliver a very top level performance um, with a new uh, record over the Everesting, and then sustaining such a stable and continuous supply of glucose to the working muscle. Um, so the intake uh, was providing energy, but then the visibility was providing this constant flux of glucose to the muscle. What's very interesting also is that um, we didn't have any uh, information beforehand of such an intake in terms of absolute quantity and the glucose response in the circulation. Because, uh, it, I mean, uh, the body would do everything to maintain homeostasis uh, in terms of glucose control. And homeostasis is around 
100 milligrams per deciliter. Um, but during exercise, we did see this combined effect of the intensity, of course, but also on the feeding of the feeding that would push your glucose level to 160 as average for seven hours. So that's quite impressive um, overall. Yeah, that, that sort of level is not something you see too often then, is it not? Yeah, that's something we see. Uh, we are having quite a good observations behind high carbohydrate feeding um, matched with high intensity exercise that will drive some glucose release into the circulation per se uh, with performance outcome of uh, long lasting events like Everesting record or uh, Ironman perhaps or long distance run runners as well. So we, we do have that and we are trying to use those as a guideline uh, to prescribe a certain glucose level in, in, in a way of a threshold glucose level or a zone glucose level um, to, to make sure you kind of provide this glucose influx to the muscle, that you feel, you feel good and then you intake the right amount of carbohydrate and then you perform at your very best. Uh, we should mention sort of before we move on that, that you know, some of these, uh, some of these companies, super sapiens, et cetera, like they helped you out with this, but they're, they're not, they, they weren't sponsoring anything. They don't sponsor this podcast. They're not, there's no financial relationship between cycling tips and, and these companies. And, and there's no financial relationship between, you know, cycling tips and Josh Portner and Robert Chung and, and the rest of these guys. So what, what happened was like everybody who I reached out to for advice or help on this was was really really keen to help me and, and 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 a world record attempt and that that goes for everything from the people who i asked random questions to there was quite a few companies that you know i reached out to you know like the chain rings and stuff that they, they just didn't make what i w was looking for but they were more than happy to give advice or tell me where i was wrong or you know um <laughs> steer me steer me down a better better path or whatever like and and i'm you know quite thankful for all the help that i got it was it was a lot of useful sounding boards to bounce my wacky ideas off. <laughs> We've got more things to talk about here before we wrap up for the day. Core temperature. It's another thing you were, you were keeping track of. And you've mentioned it a couple times already in this episode. You, you were talking about the skin suit and other things. It's, we know that core temperature has a, an impact on performance. So what were you using? What did it tell you? How did you benefit from it? Uh, I was using, yeah, a, a, a sensor that effectively just clips onto your heart rate strap. Um, and it, it's kind of confusing. It's from a company called Core. Um, so yeah, the, the, the Core measures core body temperature. And yeah, basically, you know, it, I, I had found this by, I had noticed in a picture that one of the rider in one of the races was wearing this little clip thing on their heart rate strap and I kind of was wondering what that is and I'd sort of a couple of years ago had been looking into uh, you know positioning for for time trials and that and had sort of been questioning you know uh, uh, if you could use core body temperature as a as a metric for sustainability of a time trial position and that you know if you're in too extreme a position that you're you're going to overheat and and that could end up leading to you know that position not being sustainable and and the only way of measuring core body temperature then was a, a pill that you swallowed that is quite expensive uh, and can only be used once for obvious reasons um 
so yeah, it sort of left that idea, but I'd always been aware of it. And someone at the time had suggested to me there is something in the works of a wearable uh, sensor. And, you know, seen this, put two and two together, found Core, reached out to them and sort of had a couple of conversations with them. And they, they, they to, to fast forward a bit and, and keep us, you know, to, to save you the, the boring details, basically what I did was um, a, a heat ramp test. Uh, or a temperature ramp test, and that was to find my sort of temperature training zone, uh, which you know is very much like a a parameter ramp test. You you ramp up the intensity and then and then hold it, but you're you're reading uh, core body temperature and in, instead of watts, and you're also doing it in a, a really hot environment. So I, you know, went into the utility room, turned on the tumble dryer, turned on the radiators for a couple of hours, and then did a indoor training session which was absolutely horrible, was the... I would rather go do another Everesting than do that again. <laughs> but yeah, from from that, we got a core training zone. And then basically I added three times a week, added 40 minutes at that sort of heat and that temperature um, to, to my training. And, and the theory was that this training would increase blood plasma, which would result in increased performance. Um, and yeah, there, you know, there's no way of... I don't really have any way of proving that that did work, but one of the interesting things that came out of it was that in the half Everesting, I wore one particular skin suit and I could noticeably feel myself um, overheating. It was a couple of degrees warmer, but I, I, I sort of noticeably felt myself overheating. I was sweating all day and that sort of was part of the decision-making process for the final skin suit that I used. It was the, the lightest material one that I had here. And... You know, it also validated what I was thinking was that, you know, it had to be around 10 to 13 degrees. And I think the half everything, if I remember right, was 13 degrees Celsius. Found that a little bit too warm. It was 10 degrees on the day of the actual Everesting attempt. And I literally did not feel a drop of sweat from, from start to finish. And that wasn't as a result of wearing a core wearable device, but it was a, as a result of what I learned from doing the half everything and, and, and monitoring my temperature throughout that. And we, we noticed that in the half everything. When I reached thirty-eight and a half degrees uh, body temp, uh, you know, I, I I did start to plateau in my performance and my output. Whereas in the actual full Everesting, I didn't go above like thirty-eight point one or something. So yeah, it was interesting to see. Hmm. I'm blaming the heat on my failed Everesting last year. Definitely, hundred percent. That's all it was. I mean, it was like it was like thirty or something like that. Not ten. What is this 10 nonsense? <laughs> that was the only thing that kept me from climbing an extra like 10,000 feet. That's for sure. Should do it in meters, man. It's less. That's, that's what I should have done. What <laughs> that's where I you're thinking? going wrong. Oh, man. All I had to do was 8,000 somethings. And then mm-hmm. said I had to do 29,000 feet. That's way too many. <laughs> Actually, I do need to give it a, I need to give it a go again. Maybe on a day that's not like... 85 degrees Fahrenheit. I, I think we need to have a cycling tips meet up on more Gap and get everybody to do one in unison. I would, I would be all in. I'd be all in. Yeah. So obviously, a successful Everesting. I mean, 24 minutes off your old time, 20 minutes off the, the world record. But, you know, you left, you left some things on the table still, which must kind of drive you nuts. Uh, <laughs> Not not least of which is the fact that you got a flat tire, right? So that that in it, in and of itself cost you a bit of time, but you left some other small things on the table too, just just in preparation and things like that. So 
what were the compromises you kind of had to make here? Because you are a, you know, a full-time staffer here at Cycling Tips, a dad, uh, you have lots of things going on in your life. What compromises did you have to make? I thought you were going to say I am a weirdo, which I also am. <laughs> <laughs> we all are. All yeah, of us, every well, single one of us. We, you know, in, in the in the documentary that, you know, is on the Cycling Tips YouTube channel, uh, Rachel, my wife, did mention the fact that that puncture, you know, regardless of the outcome of it, it did cost me time and that would be playing on my mind about that is time that has cost me. But weirdly, I'm kind of okay with that because I know that the effort I put out was, you know, was, I, I put it at a 6 hour 38 or 6 hour 39 effort. Um, but yes, there is a few other things that are eating on my mind. I'm trying very, very hard to tell myself they don't matter uh, and I don't need to go and do it again. Uh, and and to, to supplement that mental battle, I'm also eating and drinking quite a bit of Easter eggs and, and Belgian chocolate to, <laughs> or Belgian, Belgian beers to make sure that I can't take any notions of doing it again. But I suppose there's a couple of big ones in that, you know, it would have been really nice to get some more test rides on my more gap um n- not that i need to know my more gap any better but just on the final version of the everesting bike you know it was all again i had six months to prepare but it is a slow process you know getting all those things in in, in place and and you know parts of the final bike were only arriving literally days beforehand uh, and you know there just wasn't time to to go out and, and test ride the the finished article on on the climb which would have you know on the day as we heard in the nerd alert podcast i was adjusting my cleats you know that was that that is me adjusting cleats but i didn't need to do it last year because i had a couple of days to go right with the way it is now it is the way it is but this year the the shoes only arrived you know literally four days before before the before the ride so you know that that was sort of inevitable um and you didn't take the heel pads off. I didn't take the heel pads. Like that has to be the biggest mistake anybody has ever made in the Everesting attempt. <laughs> uh, no, nobody's perfect, Kelly. <laughs> For those who haven't seen the video, uh, there's a brief moment where actually it's, it's the second video. It's the, it's the bike walkthrough, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you didn't take the heel pads off your. I just your realized shoes. Ma- making the video. You know, I had them off previously to weigh them to see what they were worth but I put them back on because I didn't want to break my neck in, in training or something like so. Um, <laughs> yeah, I forgot to take them off again. But yeah, like those those things, they're, they're, as I said, just the opportunity to to test the bike a, a bit more would have, would have helped. I couldn't really go to Memorial Gap more often, but if I had have been able to, um, you know, it was, there there was a lockdown in that, in that in place. And had I been able to get there more often, we could have dialed in things like tire pressure, you know, more perfectly, we could have looked at a number of other things. I'm taking a mind blank now, but we've mentioned a few things throughout this podcast that I could have actually validated the decisions that we made on them. And, you know, that, that all comes down to, to, to a couple, to one thing really. And that's just running out of time, you know, in the end up, I was watching the weather forecast. I had notifications on my phone for the perfect day for the last, you know, few months. And, what what we ended up doing was we snatched at a day that was as the best combination of all the different factors we were looking to optimize and, and and we got them we got them right. But they're actually, you know, sitting here now three and a half or three weeks later, there hasn't been a single day since that has been any way near decent for, for everything on that climb. And, you know, I can look at the fact that I didn't get a chance to taper properly and I did a half everesting, a breakthrough ride and a testing session. 
in the week prior to the Everesting and, and go, well, you know, if I had it tapered properly, I would have went better. But, you know, had I tapered then, I'd be out of my form by now and, and the opportunity to be gone. So, you know, it, it's it, as, as tempting as it is to work out how much faster I could have went if everything had been right, I'm fully convinced that if we went back and got those few things right and dialed in on the day, there would be something else that cost me five minutes. Uh, you know, it, it's it's <laughs> su- it's such a long, difficult event. It, it's it's not really, you know, practical to think that you're going to get the whole way through it without something going wrong. And, and you know, I'm sort of, uh, I'm not sure if I'm trying to convince you or convince me, but uh, <laughs> that's that's what I'm sticking with anyway. <laughs> The one thing that's really, really annoying me is the fact that I forgot to zero off the offset the power meter on the morning of the ride. So that's, yeah. Uh-oh. Yeah. I, I, that- well, I, I think I forgot. Maybe I forgot that I did do it, but I'm pretty sure that I forgot <laughs> to do it. Ah, number's close enough anyway. Yeah. It's all, we it's we all reckon good. it was, we reckon it was reading a, a few percent too low. Which may have, may have contributed to that pacing thing that you're talking about earlier. Going out a little bit hot. Mm, yeah. Perhaps. Well, do we think this is the the fastest possible Everesting? I mean, if it's it's close to your fastest possible Everesting, I think we're we're confident in that. Maybe not the absolute fastest, but given all the variables, mm. quite close to that. Are you happy with your time? Do you think you're going to get beat at some point? Uh, I'm. It's definitely going to be beat at some point. You know, I'm I'm not the most physically gifted athlete in in the world. That's you know you don't need to be a scientist to work that out. Um, so I, I've uh, and couple up with the fact that all records will eventually be broken. That that is the nature of them. So you know, unless you know, as everything just disappears overnight, the time will be beaten. I I I was going to say I don't think it's my best possible time. I I don't know if it's my best possible night time or not. But what I do know is that it's fifty four seconds off being a full ten minutes quicker. And if I can just explain that for a second, had it been. Six hours, thirty-nine minutes, and fifty-nine seconds. That would have been, you know, when when you talk about my time, it would have been six hours thirty something. But now it's six hours right. forty something, which is which is ten minutes more, uh, <laughs> and that sort of annoys me a bit. But as I say, I'm trying to I'm trying to convince myself that I did a six hours thirty something ride had it not been for the puncture or you know this that or the other. So yeah, who knows? I, I'm 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 happy with it for the time being. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> almost the most convincing you've ever been running no, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to I, again i can't work out if i'm trying to convince myself or, or or the listeners but anyway that's that's my line and i'm sticking to it well maybe uh maybe phil gaiman will show up and try mm. to take it away from you and then you can just take it back again we've, we've effectively just done a how-to on on an everesting world record here haven't we so uh yeah exactly if, if if somebody wasn't going to beat me on raw talent they were going to use uh everything that i've learned from uh on you know through the process that i went through that we've just shared here so yeah um how much would it take not to publish this episode <laughs> <laughs> too late too late uh i have sort of like one sort of final question here which is you know robert chung and and josh you know they've been crunching lots of numbers right in the aftermath of this thing have you learned anything from that have have any of those numbers come back with any additional information that you wish you had had prior or is it just sort of validating what what you did uh one of the bits of information was you know that was the question came up was the power meter 
zero offset on the morning of the ride, <laughs> which which sort of prompted my memory that maybe it hadn't been. Um, one of the things I think it was Robert had calculated that you know all of the gains that we had made just in the week between the half Everesting and the full Everesting were saving me somewhere in the region of ten meters per lap. Um, but yeah, the, what, does that, what does that equate to at the end of? Six and a half hours. Uh, I suppose it's that's uh, if we just do it by seventy six laps, that's seven hundred and sixty laps, which is quite a or seven hundred and sixty meters of elevation gain, which is which is quite a lot. Like, um, but you know that that is with the caveat that it has been hectic since the since we broke the record, and you know uh, I haven't had a time to jump on a call with with those people again and really delve into the, the the nuts and bolts and, and go through all, all the details and um yeah that might be something exciting to do in the future i guess well running we're all very proud of you well done Thank you. uh none of the rest of us will be going for this anytime soon so your record is safe within cycling tips for sure <laughs> uh among cycling tips staff i believe you will remain unbeaten at least in the near term uh maybe we can hire you are hiring at the moment though so we are hiring. Is is that one Let's of the see. criteria? Mm. See if Contador is interested in giving <laughs> it another go. <laughs> what other what other former pro could we pick up, put in a cycling tips jersey, and and send him up the hill? I don't know. <laughs> All right, it's time to wrap it up for today. Hope everybody enjoyed the science of Everesting over the last hour and a half or so. If you've got questions for us, well, drop them in the comment section underneath the story post up on cyclingtips.com or shoot us a message on Twitter or Instagram or wherever you want. We, could, we, we find all of those things. We do see them. So if you've got a question for Ronan, let us know. And with that, we'll be back next week with another regular episode. Bye, everybody. Bye.